Hey, howdy, space nerds. This podcast is produced by the public radio station WMFE. Public radio is made possible from contributors just like you. A few times a year, we ask our listeners to consider making a donation to help the programs they love. So if you love this podcast, consider a gift to keep it going. You can make a donation online by visiting WMFE.org. Or if you're old school, you can call 1-800-785-2020 to make that contribution. Ten bucks, hundred bucks, five bucks a month, a dollar a day. It all helps fuel this show. Thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. On the last episode, we spoke with astronaut Scott Kelly about the year in space study. As scientists continue to sift through all that data, the next generation of astronauts are beginning to look to longer missions in space in more extreme environments like the surface of Mars. So what's next? What's beyond a year in space? A recent PBS documentary asked that very question. You can check it out on PBS's website, pbs.org. It's called Beyond a Year in Space. Jessica Meir is one of the astronauts in the documentary, and she's one looking at how to get humans farther into space. She was selected as an astronaut in 2013 and has a background in studying the physiology of animals in extreme environments. She took a few moments to call us from the Johnson Space Center to tell us just how astronauts are training for long-duration deep space missions and what's ahead after a year in space. So what got you interested in researching these extreme environments and, and what's ahead for, for humans in space past one year? Yeah, so my background is actually as a physiologist. So I'm very interested in, in this kind of work. My previous work was looking at animals in extreme environments, so how animals that dive to extraordinary depths or fly at high altitudes, how they adapt to these kind of things. So it's really just the next natural step of extreme physiology and thinking about hu- how humans will adapt you know, beyond our planet, beyond this 1G environment, which we've, always, which we've evolved and become adapted to here on Earth, of course. So... Uh, for me, you know, I, I have this inherent interest, of course, just given my background, um, but basically all of the astronauts are really an integral part of all of the science that we're doing today on the International Space Station. So now that we have this continuous orbiting lab, you know, we've had people on the International Space Station for over 17 years now doing all kinds of experiments, ranging from these physiological ones, looking at how space flight and the radiation environment and microgravity affect the human body, to how they affect really any other scientific process or field. So we are, we've, you know, over, the, over that length of time, uh, the Russian Space Agency, NASA, we have accumulated quite a bit of data on, on how, uh, you know, what does happen to the human body. And the good thing is that we've come really a long way. So as I'm sure you're aware, when you go into the, the environment of space and you don't have this, this 1G, this gravitational component that we're used to here on Earth, it has a great effect on your muscles. So you have significant muscle atrophy, significant bone loss. And when you don't have this constant loading of gravity on your bones, they actually start leaching calcium as soon as you remove that. So as soon as you're in space, you'll be offloading calcium from your bones. You really need that, of course, to maintain the integrity. So we know that all these things happen, and the great thing is we've come a long way encountering these even today on the space station. Uh, Mainly that's through the exercise that we do and this amazing exercise equipment that uh, is on board there. So when we start thinking about longer missions, Scott's one-year mission, going to Mars, or even beyond that, 
then, you know, of course we're exposing ourselves to a much longer duration, a lot more time available for these kinds of changes to exist and, and you know, even possibly cause some other kind of long-term change that we don't know about yet. Um, so the great thing is we're still doing all these studies. We're gaining more and more data all the time, and hopefully all of this, all these experiments that Scott was a part of, as well as other crew members, will really help contribute toward that and giving us more knowledge of, you know, the, one of the big questions for Scott's year-long mission was, okay, we have all this data already on six-month missions. Is, is a year different, or is at six months are you already kind of at this baseline where you might not have any further changes? That will be, of course, really important when we think about extending even further. Now that Scott Kelly's back here on Earth, what, what are we learning from that year in space mission? Um, I am not privy to the, you know, I don't think that all of the uh, data has been analyzed yet, and the scientists have not released uh, all of those information from his studies, so I can't really speak to that directly quite yet. Um, but one of the problems that we have been having, you know, even, that we knew about even before Scott's mission, were some interesting deficits in vision and some changes in the eye. Uh, after these long-duration space flights. And this is something that we're really, this is one of our hotter topics right now in terms of the medical and physiological side because we're trying to understand what's behind that. And in some crew members, it is causing vision changes when they return that uh, in some cases it goes away over time. In some cases, actually, it doesn't go away. Um, so, of course, you know, that's going to be in a, in, we actually see some, some differences in the morphology of the eye following these space flights. So that's an, an, one area of particular concern um, in terms of, of Scott's specific results, I think we'll probably have to wait a little bit longer to see all the details on that. Is there any idea or, or guesses as to what's causing those uh, vision changes or vision challenges for uh, long-duration astronauts? Um, it's not completely determined yet, but there are some hypotheses, of course, that a lot of different scientists, several different scientists are, are looking into, and those studies are still ongoing on the space station. Um, but it probably has something to do with, you know, when you when you go into space, you have this redistribution of body fluids. You have higher pressure in the in the upper body and the head. You have more blood flow, so you might have just from the pressure alone, you may have increased pressure in the head and in the eyes that might be contributing to it. Um, and so we're, I mean, they're even looking down into the level of specific precursors and markers to determine whether or not more people would be susceptible to it. Interestingly, so far, it's only affected men, not women. Um, whether or not that's statistical, though, we don't know. You know, there so far have been fewer women, so that may or may not persist. But so far, that's the trend anyway. We'll see whether or not that actually proves to be statistically significant. But, yeah, there's uh, definitely some interesting work there, and hopefully we will figure that one out soon. So, Jessica, you've been selected um, for NASA's class of astronauts that are obviously looking at long-duration deep space missions to places like the moon or Mars. I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of the training that you're going through, um, what that entails. And I know that in the past you've done some extreme habitat training like like Nemo underwater. Um, maybe talk about what you're going through now and uh, what some of the training methods in the past have done to, to help prepare you for today and eventually get you to Mars. Yeah, one of the ways that we do, that we train as astronauts, you know, if you think about if we're trying to train for space, how do we replicate all of the different conditions that we have in space? And, of course, we can't replicate all of them. What we do is try to find representative examples, what we call analog environments here on Earth, that can replicate as many as those characteristics as possible. So, for example, if you're living somewhere in a small, isolated habitat that there's some kind of hospitable or harsh environment, maybe you need a life support system to go outside, you're working together in close confines with a small group of people on you know, some scientific objectives, that kind of thing, then you can kind of create the same kind of scenario with the same kind of daily life schedule and the same kind of stressors and pressures that we have in space. 
So we have a couple different analogs that we use quite regularly here at NASA for that training, and one of them is that you just mentioned, the NEMO missions. And that is in, those are held in the Aquarius habitat, which is an underwater habitat off of the coast of Key Largo. So if you picture kind of like a mini submarine that's immobile, it's just there on the seafloor, and you're living in, inside this um, small structure and you're working as a team, you need a life support system to go outside. In this case, you know, you need scuba gear or a hard hat diving type equipment. You're accomplishing scientific objectives, that kind of thing. So it's really effective training to mimic all of those aspects of space flight for us. One of the other really particularly important aspects is that of what we call expeditionary skills. So really just working together as a team, things like teamwork, uh, leadership, followership, taking care of yourself, taking care of others, all of those things that you know come out, especially when you're talking about a long-duration mission, like six months in close confines on the space station. So I was fortunate enough to participate that in that program way back in 2002. I was not an astronaut then. I was here working as a scientist. That was before I went to graduate school. So I was a life science crew member on that mission. But interestingly enough, that mission was also with Scott Kelly. Um, so it was with Scott Kelly, another astronaut and a flight director. And um, most of the missions are usually about 10 days underwater. Ours was cut a little bit short because there was a tropical storm coming. Uh, but it's a really valuable training opportunity for us. Um, also, more recently, in just last year, I participated in another analog. And this one is not run by NASA, but it's run by the European Space Agency. And it's called CAVES. And so similar kind of thing, we're living in an extreme environment, in this, in this case in an, under, in an underground cave in Italy, in Sardinia. And so we went to Italy, a group of six people and a very international crew, just like the space station. It was me, another NASA astronaut, a Spanish astronaut, Japanese astronaut, a Russian cosmonaut, and even a Chinese taikonaut. And we went and were trained in caving techniques by a team of experts. And this is you know, really technical caving, similar to the kind of equipment that you would wear for rock climbing, you know, harnesses and that kind of thing. And then we went into the cave for six days, um, and we had the six-day mission where we were exploring the cave, we were mapping the cave, we were collecting all kinds of scientific uh, samples, biological, atmospheric, water samples, that kind of thing. Um, and in this, I mean, it was really an extraordinary cave. It wasn't just like a hole in the ground. It was a network of 25 kilometers of different branches, so it, it was really like true exploration, and uh, it's also a very spectacular cave. It it really was unlike anything I ever imagined could exist on, on Earth. And it's something that I always say when I talk about scuba diving and how, you know, there's, most of our planet is oceans and there's this whole world under there. I had no idea there was this whole world under the surface of the Earth as well. Um, there were these geologic structures that you, it was really difficult to believe that they were naturally created. I mean, there's this one structure called the angel wing that looks like it was, you know, carved out and sculpted out of marble. Um, so we really felt, you know, we, we really actually felt like characters in a science fiction illustration. It was that sort of fantastical, like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or something. Um, but I think a really good representation, especially when we start thinking about exploring further, exploring new bodies, going to Mars, that kind of thing, that kind of, we were actually, you know, we were actually mapping and charting our way through these different branches. So really interesting work and very, very applicable to our training as astronauts. That sounds really cool. Uh, you know, th thinking back to your time on Nemo and living in those caves, I mean, is there anything that, that jumped out at you that really surprised you or, or, or something that, that you didn't think was going to be so challenging that actually was? Um, I don't think that there was anything that was that surprising to me. I also, you know, used to work in the Antarctic, so I'm kind of used to already kind of living in those and operating in those environments. Um, so in that, for me, that's actually when I'm, 
I found that I'm really the most content and the most fulfilled. So I think, you know, whenever I have a, a situation like that where I have both a, a mental and a physical challenge, you know, doing science in the Antarctic, you are using your brain to conduct your scientific experiments, but at the same time, one day you might be shoveling snow all day and fighting off a storm and, you know, catching animals outside in the wild. And so the combination of those elements has always really been what, what does it for me. So I think that that's, those are also very similar to those analog environments where you experience that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of times at NASA people ask if you're we're scared or surprised or that kind of thing as astronauts, and I think that the interesting thing is that we are so well-trained. You know, we spend most of our time training, and we, you know, we're the ones that people always want to talk to and the ones that make the headlines, but there are hundreds and thousands of people here at NASA that are the true experts. They're the ones, you know, teaching us everything that we need to know, training us, watching over everything important during a launch, during the entire mission to make sure that we're okay. They're the ones that are really, you know, the experts on the ground. And so I think because of that, because of that support system and because of the intense amount of training that we receive, we're, we're really ready for, for anything that we come across. What did you do down in the Antarctic? Uh, I went down there for my Ph.D. research, and so I went, I went down five times, and we would go, um, well, I went down four times for my Ph.D. research, and those were about three-month missions. So we would go down there. Um, we were working with a diving physiology of emperor penguins. So we were trying to understand how an emperor penguin can dive for as long and deep as it does. An emperor penguin can hold its breath for 30 minutes. So we were looking at the diving behavior and physiology, uh, directly looking at things like heart rate and oxygen levels during the dive to understand more about how their bodies are capable of doing that. So we would set up a campsite down there on the ice called Penguin Ranch, and uh, we would actually put these little backpack recorder devices on the animals and measure these different physiological variables while they were diving. So we would set up a small kind of camp on the ice with about five to eight people, depending on the year. So it's kind of like that analog environment that I was talking about. And actually, NASA uses the Antarctic as an analog for a lot of studies as well. Oh, man, that, that's that's really cool. And penguins are probably my favorite animal. So that's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, who doesn't really? <laughs> Well, Jessica, the show is called Are We There Yet? We asked that question of Mars. Um, so I'm going to ask you that question. When it comes to human exploration of Mars, are we there yet? I think we're not there quite yet, but we are definitely on our way. And that's the exciting thing, really, about all the different programs that we're running here at NASA today with the International Space Station, all the data that we're collecting. You know, like we spoke about understanding more about how spaceflight affects us as humans, but not only us, how it affects materials combustion, flames burn differently in microgravity, how it affects different materials that might be involved in building new spacecraft and habitat. So we are learning so much on all of these levels and in all these disciplines that we will use directly in this, in this journey to Mars. Uh, right now is an interesting time in that you know, we, have these, we have SpaceX and Boeing both building new spacecraft that we can launch again from the U.S. and get to the space station. We have NASA building Ori the Orion spacecraft, which is the spacecraft that we'll be using when we do go beyond the low Earth orbit of the space station. So that would be the spacecraft for these uh, first lunar missions and then moon mission, or, and then Mars missions. Um, uh, if you're not aware, the administration has you know, reassembled the National Space Council for the first time in a while, and their advice is that we do go to back to the moon first, which I think is a great plan, and, and I think most people in my office agree with the fact that it's a natural step um, getting back to the moon first, demonstrating that, you know, kind of taking the necessary incremental steps in order to get to Mars. So I think that we're well on our way. I absolutely believe that we will get there, hopefully in my lifetime. I don't know if we'll necessarily if we'll get there during my career or not, but I would say, you know, hopefully by the, like, 2040s, 2050s, if not then, then 
and we'll we'll uh, we'll be getting there. Jessica Meir is a NASA astronaut selected back in 2013. She's joining us from the astronaut office at the Johnson Space Center. Jessica, thanks so much for your time and uh, chatting with us. All right, you're very welcome. Thank you. A very special thanks to the folks at the Johnson Space Center and PBS for setting up this interview. Stay listening on the next episode. We investigate what happened to Curiosity's drill and how operators intend to fix it. The conversation continues on Twitter. The show is AWTYMars. I'm at Space Brendan. Got a story idea? Comment? Complaint? Want to just chat? Hey, shoot me an email. I'm at AreWeThereYet at WMFE.org. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. And you can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. Hey, and if you celebrate it, happy Thanksgiving. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>